You've probably heard the phrase, to err is human, to forgive divine. And that seems quite true to us, doesn't it? Uh, we're all human, we're all very imperfect. We all make mistakes. We all make errors in judgment. Sometimes those are quite simple and easy, and we can kind of sweep them under the carpet. Sometimes it can cost us quite a bit. Um, this is a picture of the S-81 Isaac Peril. It is the newest uh, submarine in the Spanish Army, or Spanish Navy's fleet. It's one of the newest ones that they have in NATO. And uh, it was just commissioned this last year. But it was actually ordered 10 years previous to that. And the reason it took so long is as they started to build this uh, submarine, they realized after they started that they'd made a mistake that they'd made an error in the calculation. There was a decimal point in the wrong place. And what that meant was that the, the submarine was actually going to be about 100 times heavier than what they thought it was going to be. So that meant that it would do a really good job of going down, <laughs> but it wouldn't do the greatest job of coming up again. So they actually had to fix this. So they actually had to add another 10 meters to this submarine, and it cost them about $9.7 million per meter. So a very costly mistake. This is the Mars Climate Orbiter. And in 1998, it blasted off from Earth, and it took a 10-month journey to get to Mars. And a desire was for it to go into our orbit, and it would look at the atmosphere and some of the, uh, the weather on Mars, and it would be part of further um, missions that they were going to do to Mars. Well, as it got to Mars, it, uh, it actually entered orbit just a little bit too low, and it burned up. And so that was about a $380 million project, or sorry, $328 million project, which in today's value is about a half a billion dollars. And when they looked at why that happened, what they realized was the Jet Propulsion Lab from NASA had spec'd things out in SI units, or metric units. But Lockheed had actually designed it using Imperial units. And so when it actually came to Mars, it actually went lower than uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab had desired it to go, and it burned up. Very costly mistake, right? Well, today we're going to actually talk a little bit about the cost of some of the mistakes that Lot has made, and we talked about last week. And we're continuing on in the Foundations of Our Faith series. It's really based on the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and some of the stories that we can glean, or some of the things we can glean from their lives and the stories of their lives. And if you remember last week, if you were here, we talked about Abraham making uh, a decision by faith, and that Lot made a decision by sight, and then they parted ways in that sense. And so we're going to pick that up again here this morning. So let's, before we start, let's pray. Father, in Isaiah 55, you say, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And that's all we pray this morning, Father, that you will take your word, that you will uh, make it something that, that you used in the lives of each one of us, and that you won't come back void, but will come back accomplishing what you desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're looking now at the 14th chapter of uh, Genesis right now. So the first nine verses talk a lot about a bunch of different kings and 
and battles and things like that. And I thought I would just kind of summarize those first nine verses for you. So really what happens is there's Sodom and Gomorrah and three other cities that are kind of at the south end of the Salt Sea or the, the Dead Sea. And they've been paying tribute to the king of Elam, which I'll come back to in just a minute. And they decide, no, we've had enough. We're not going to pay any more tribute. We're going to stop that idea. Well, that sounds all very good for about a year until the king of Elam kind of gets organized and kind of gets three of his buddy kings to come out and they start looking for these guys. And so what happens is Elam, if you look up at the top right-hand corner of this, uh, this map, that's the Caspian Sea. Bottom right-hand corner, that's the Gulf of Persia. And between those two is really where Elam is at this particular time. And so it's, it's in a part of what we call Mesopotamia. It's where the Tigris, Euphrates, and other rivers are there. It's where Abraham actually comes from. And more than a millennium later, it's where the, the kingdoms of Babylon and Assyria come, and they actually take away the descendants of Abraham as they, uh, as they move through their area. Now, you can't generally go straight from, from Mesopotamia straight across to Canaan because you're going through um, a very desert area. So what they generally did was they followed the Euphrates River upwards towards Syria. And that's the way Abraham came to Canaan as well. So they followed follow that upwards from Syria. And then when you go down from Syria, if you were going to go to Egypt, you would tend to go along the coast, along the Mediterranean coast on the left-hand side there. And you would go down the plains of Syria, or plains of Canaan and you would go into the cities of Egypt. But there was another route that uh, was kind of an inland route. And because the kings that had rebelled were along that route, uh, this is the way that the, uh, the king of Elam and his, his uh, fellow kings decided to go. And this is a bit of a hard thing to look at, a little bit busy graph. But if you look at the top right-hand corner, you'll see a blue line coming down. It's coming down to the uh, east of the Sea of Galilee and Jordan and then the, the Salt Sea. And that's the way they came. It was called the King's Highway. And as they were going through there, they actually conquered a bunch of other uh, different groups. And these weren't easy groups to conquer. Some of them were what they would call the giants of the Bible. They were big people. They were, they were affordable enemies. And so they, they, they conquered a bunch of these people as they went along. And it could be that those people actually had rebelled as well. It could be that they decided not to give tribute. Or it could have been they just took advantage of the time that they were in the land to conquer a few other people. So they came finally to, uh, to meet up with these five kings. And this is not kind of like five-on-four hockey, right? Where you kind of think the advantage goes to the five. Uh, this is kind of like uh, the four NHL All-Stars against five peewee players, okay? These were smaller kings. These were smaller cities. This was not a fair fight. This was, this was four giants against, against five small ones. And so they come into this uh, Valley of Sidon, and, and as they come into there, they meet, the, the, the five of them have come out to meet the four of these other kings. And that's where we pick up our, our reading this morning. Now the valley of Sidon was full of tar pits, and when the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and, and, rest, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot 
and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. First thing you notice is it talks about tar pits. And what they really were were bitumen deposits. And if you're not familiar with bitumen, if you think of the oil sands in, in uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan, those are bitumen deposits. Bitumen is used in asphalt production. It's the, it's the part that makes it look dark. It's a, it's a very uh, viscous hydrocarbon product. And so, in fact, there was so much of this around that the Romans actually named the Salt Sea asphaltitis, same kind of root as asphalt that we use today. So these, these tar pits or these bitumen deposits were all over the place. And as, as the king started to flee, it says that they fell into them. Uh, and in one sense, you can look at it as actually fell into them, but the, the word they use for fell there can actually be translated as well as to come down in a, in, a, in a proper manner, to come down in a decisive manner. So it's like when you came off of a camel or when you came off of a chariot. You came down on purpose. So it could have been that they actually hid in these, these tar pit areas as they were trying to get away from the people that were around them. So the next thing we find is that they're, they're in this valley of Siddim. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting place that they actually think might be underwater at this point in time. But what happens is we look at Lot. And Lot has now, um, says, been living in Sodom. And the fact of the matter is when we last left Lot, he was making the decision. And he was looking down at the Jordan River and he was looking at the, the beautiful plains and the beautiful watered areas, thinking that this was a place where I could actually prosper. This was a place where I could really make a name for myself. And so he had decided at that point in time to go down into Sodom. And not actually into Sodom, but into that area. And when we find him now, we find him actually living in Sodom. And so we're not exactly sure what kind of made him move from the plains and just kind of the nomadic life that he have to actually living in Sodom. Perhaps it was uh, just the thrill of the city or the, uh, the goods that he could get there. Perhaps his, his family preferred living in the city life. Uh, perhaps he just wanted to fit in with the people of that area who tended to be city dwellers. But we find him actually in Sodom. And now you look at the fact that he's gone from Abraham being with him to, to the valley of the Jordan to Sodom itself, which is a wicked city, we're told in the last chapter. So he's made a progression. It's a little bit like Psalm 1, where it says, Do not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. You can see this pattern, this, this development. Don't walk, don't stand, don't sit. It's all like uh, David and Bathsheba. You know, the first thing David does is, is he's, he makes a very simple choice. He decides not to go off to war in the springtime with everyone else. And that first choice leads to a bunch of other choices bit by bit. And he ends up having uh, an adulterous affair. And he ends up having uh, his... his Generals kill uh, Uriah the Hittite, who was the husband of uh, Bathsheba. It's, it's a progression that we see. And that's the same thing here with Lot. If you think of the people that we see um, in the media that uh, have these, these great moral failures, these Christian leaders, likelihood is it didn't happen that Monday they were spiritually powerful and strong and being with the Lord, and Tuesday they fell into this great moral pit. 
Likelihood is it was bit by bit. It was one decision after another that led from the place of being with God to a place that you're without God and into sin. And that's what we find Lot doing here. So Lot faces, or Lot faces the consequences because of all of the stuff that he's done. Now he's now been in a place where he is, he's actually being carried away. His, his family has been uh, who apps abused and, and he's, he's been in this battle and now his family and all his possessions have been taken away. He's now finding himself carried away. He's been carried away by this group of kings who are now traveling back to Mesopotamia, and so he doesn't have any idea of what's going to happen to him. It's something that he has no control over, and it's something that's very negative. It's a consequence to all of these little decisions that he's made. Lot pays a consequence. But God's not finished with Lot yet. There's more to be told. So we pick that up, Genesis chapter 14, 13 through 14. A man who escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Marmri, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of who were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relatives had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So the next thing is really that Abraham answers the call. Here's this tragedy that's happened to Lot. He comes to know about it. Abraham doesn't hesitate. It doesn't show any hesitation in this. Abraham's willing. And you think that maybe Abraham thought, well, great, you know, I gave Lot the choice. Uh, now my life will be simpler. He's a little farther away. I can, I can live my life. I'll let Lot live his life. Um, that didn't come true for him. It became more complicated because of the choices that Lot had, had given. He could have easily said, well, you know, Lot's made his bed. Um, let him lie in it. You know, it's not something to do with me. I don't need to be doing something about it. He's made his choices. But he doesn't. Blood is thicker than water, and he recognizes that Lot is his family, and he immediately moves into action. But not only that, he actually is prepared for that action. He has these 318 men that have already been trained. They've already been prepared for battle as well as, as his alliances. But it kind of immediately brings back to the idea of, of Gideon. You know, Gideon is facing the Midianites in Judges, and Gideon has 32,000 uh, armed men. And God says, that's too many. You know, I, that's too many for me to deliver Midian into your hands. So he twiddles it down from 32,000 down to 300 men. And then God gives him the glory and the victory through what God has done. So it's very much a fact that God has taken care of what goes on there. So, we move on from there to Genesis 14, 15 through 20. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer, the king allied with him, and the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shebae, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High 
creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to the God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And you know, it's interesting. Um, Abraham uses some strategy here. He's only got these, these few men against a very vast army. And so he comes in the middle of the night. And he separates his, his army out into the various portions. And God uses that to give him a great victory. A victory where he's actually well overwhelmed as far as the number of people are concerned and the ability of those people. But it's God who actually gives him that victory. And they come, after that happens, he's, he's actually, it's actually traveled about 100 miles, 100 kilometers actually, first, just to get to Dan. So he's, these, these kings have been on the march after they've defeated the five kings in the, the Valley of Siddim. And they, he, they're on their way back to Mesopotamia. And so he has to actually travel several days just to catch up with them in Dan, which is about, like I said, about 100 kilometers north of where he was. He then engages them, and he then, he then actually chases them for another 100 kilometers. And he ends up victorious after that. But it's been a long battle. It's been a long journey for the people that he's been with. And God has given them the victory. So God gives him the victory. And then after that, after he meets with these, uh, sorry, after he meets uh, with the victory that he's got, he actually comes back. And he comes back to this, this valley of Shaveh. And uh, I, actually, Josephus, who's a, a first century historian, says the Valley of Shaveh was about two stadia uh, south of Jerusalem. And that's about a quarter mile. So it's about a quarter mile south of Jerusalem. He kind of meets up with these other two kings, Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. And this actually happens to be the valley, if you remember the story of Absalom, who's one of the, the sons of David. He actually sets up a pillar to himself in this valley. And so he's come back. He's come back to meet these two kings. Now, one of them is Melchizedek. And he's a very interesting character. He's one of the fascinating characters of the Bible. He just kind of shows up here. It just, just shows up. And uh, it ends up being uh, uh, something that, that is not only uh, something that's in the Old Testament, but it comes into the New Testament, as we'll talk about it as well. But Melchizedek shows up. And you, first you ask yourself, who is this guy, right? The rabbinical writers would often think of him as Shem, one of the uh, sons of Noah. Some of the Christian writers will think of him as a pre-incarnate Christ coming to earth. But most people will look at him simply as what he is, a Canaanite king, a king of Jerusalem. Now his name means king of righteousness, and his king of Salem means king of peace. And he's actually considered a type, a type of Christ. And a type is something in the Old Testament, whether it's a person or a place or, a, or a, an event or something that happens in the Old Testament that has a corresponding happening or event or person in the New Testament. And Hebrews in particular talks about Melchizedek quite a bit. And in chapter 7, it talks about how they compare Melchizedek and Jesus together. And the first thing is, it, it mentions in chapter 7 of Hebrews that Melchizedek is without father or mother, without genealogy. And it comes back to the Genesis, where Genesis is all about genealogy, right? Genesis talking about the son of somebody, some of somebody, some of somebody. And so the fact that you get Melchizedek 
just kind of appearing out of nowhere without genealogy, uh, without father or mother, apparently. It, it simply says in Hebrews that it shows that he has uh, a permanent priesthood, an eternal priesthood, uh, one that's based on an indestructible life. And that kind of ties in with Christ, where it says that Melchizedek is also a king and a priest. And Jesus is a king and a priest. And Jesus was born in the tribe of Judah, which meant that was the kingly portion of it. He was coming from the line of David, uh, which is a kingly or a ruling portion. He has nothing to do with the, the priestly portion, which is the Levitical side of things, which is descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses. So he has nothing genealogically to tie him to being a priest. But what he says here is he becomes a priest in the order of Melchizedek out of an indestructible life, out of a permanent priesthood that's not based on descendancy. It's based on the power of that life. It then goes on to say that, uh, you know, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And in Hebrews 7 it says the lesser is blessed by the greater. And it goes on to say, well, that even how great was Melchizedek because the patriarch Abraham actually gives tithe to Melchizedek. And so that's, that kind of ties in with the next idea. The next thing is that God gives us the victory, but God gives back, or Abraham gives back to God. Now, Abraham has just had this victory. He's, he's, he's in perfect uh, position to say, everything belongs to me, everything that I've conquered belongs to me, but God has given me this victory. There's no setup like there is by the time we get to Christ where the Levitical priesthood has a tithe that goes to them. Um, there's nothing along those lines. This is simply Abraham recognizing that God has given me a victory and I'm going to give back to God. God has given me a victory and I'm going to give back. Now we often talk about us giving back in the terms of our time, our uh, talents, our tithe. And this is what Abraham does even when he doesn't have to, even when there's nothing written that says that he should. He desires to give back to God in that respect. So, Abraham has decided to give back to God. And, you know, it's amazing what God says about tithing. In Malachi 3.10, he says, really, just, just test me. Test me in this. And see if I won't open wide the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you won't be able to even store it. You know, this is God's response to our response. God, God does something for us. Our natural response to, should be to give back to God, should be to return to God's kingdom. And God says, you can't outgive me. I'm always able to give you more. Last one. Genesis 14, 21 through 24. The king of Sodom said to Abram, or Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. And so it's very interesting because Abram's come back with, uh, with a victory. All of the spoils go to the victor. And so Abraham has the, the right to keep all of the people, to keep all of the goods, 
And so this king of Sodom kind of comes at him with a bit of a deal. He has no authority to make this deal because everything belongs to Abraham. But he says, okay, Abraham, I'll let you have the goods. Just give me the people back. But Abraham doesn't even want that. Abraham doesn't want anything to do with the goods. And these were good goods. These were, these were probably some of the best things that we had to offer in that region of the world. These were the goods of Sodom. But Abraham really wants to focus on God. He doesn't want to have anything to do with the wickedness of the king of Sodom. He doesn't want them to be able to say that they made him rich. He wants to be able to rely on God and God's purposes, God's riches, God's blessing, not upon something that he can see, not upon the goods of the world, in essence, the stuff that Lot has been chasing. He doesn't want that. He wants to be focused on God. So, we have an ancient battle. Um, and as we look at it, it's, it sometimes can be um, tricky because you don't want to read into the text more than it's there. Uh, but when we talk about battles in the New Testament, you know, Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's our battle. That's where we battle these days. We don't, we don't take up swords and, and head off to battle. We battle a spiritual battle. And if you want to take something away from this passage, it's just that Lot focused on worldly things and got into a lot of trouble. Abraham focused on God, and God blessed him, and God strengthened him. And that's what we can take away. Uh, Hebrews 12 starts with, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And I think that's what Abraham shows us today. That it's far better to fix our eyes on Jesus and to put aside the trappings of sin in the world. I'll ask the worship team if they'll come back up. And as they come, um, if the Lord is saying something to you today, if he's talking to you and you would like some prayer for that, uh, there will be people here after the service that will be willing to pray with you. So as people are making their way back into the foyer, just make your way front this way. God bless.